This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of uh, having three of the authors of the manuscript that we're going to be discussing in the podcast today on secondary cytoreductive surgery in platinum-sensitive recurrent ovarian cancer and meta-analyses that is published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology. Uh, today we have uh, Myung Lim, who is in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Hallium University Sacred Heart Hospital in Anyang, Korea. And of course, we also have Dr. Rob Bristow, who is in the Division of Gynecologic Oncology, Obstetrics and Gynecology at Irvine Medical Center at the University of California in Orange, California. And then uh, a, a recurring guest, uh, Dr. Christina Fotopoulou, who is in the Department of Gynecologic Oncology at Imperial College of London. So thank you all so much for participating in the, in the podcast. And I'm really looking forward to uh, discussing these questions with uh, all of you. So thank let's- Thank you very uh, much, thank you. Of course, uh, let's, um, let's get started. And uh, I'll start with uh, Christina. Um, let's start by just, if you can give a brief summary of the, the three key trials uh, addressing secondary um, cytoreductive surgery and ovarian cancer. Um, and I was wondering also certainly, what, what do you see as like the major differences between these three studies? Because obviously there's been a lot of discussion about these three particular studies. So welcome and uh, let's get started. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure to have a podcast in the International Journal of Clinical Cancer. So, um, three studies, three prospective randomized studies. I mean, even the fact that we have reached the point of having three prospective randomized trials, surgical trials in the recurrent setting, it's already a, a, a heroic act. Yeah, this is something that we would never have imagined years ago, where we just, you know, alchemistically and just based on beliefs would operate patients. So the fact alone that we have these three studies is already a sign of massive progression of our profession and us as gynecologists. Yeah, so there is no discussion about that. So. I will start with a desktop study. The desktop study is a study which I know most because we have participated, I have participated. It's a prospective randomized European UK study where we took patients um, in the upfront setting, not upfront, in the recurrent setting, and we operated on them versus just gave, given chemotherapy. Um, the most important key um, element of this study was that we selected the patients according to their platinum sensitivity status plus according to the so-called AGO score. The AGO score is a score, a very simple clinically-based score um, comprising of no ascites or very little ascites, complete tumor resection at primary surgery or very early FIGO stage, so one or two, and um, good performance status of the patient. So we, have, uh, we know that according to this AGO score, more than two out of three patients at relapse can be operated, two more three. And therefore, we took this as a key selection point. We took those patients, operated on them, and then saw what happens. And what we saw was that patients who were operated um, and had chemotherapy, as opposed to those who just had chemotherapy, they had a significantly prolonged PFS and OS um, in the entire treat, uh, intention to treat population. And the effect was even larger in those patients who were operated tumor-free. Now we have the GOG213, which was an equivalent study, but in the American population. 
So um, this study was a bit more complicated because it was a sub-study of a chemotherapy study with Avastin, so it was a bit more complicated. The main issue to the desktop study was that they did not have, um, the design did not involve a well-defined key of selecting the patient. So it was an arbitrary selection of the investigators according to their beliefs whether they could be operated tumor-free or not. Patients with extensive disease and peritoneal carcinosis were discouraged of being included. So we are talking here about patients with probably lower volume disease and a bit better uh, tumor profile and lower tumor burden. And this study actually, what it showed is that again, patients who were operated tumor-free compared to those who did not have surgery, they had a significantly prolonged PFS. However, the overall patient's population did not have any difference um, in overall survival or in PFS, whether they had surgery. On the contrary, patients who were actually operated and didn't were not operated tumor-free, they actually had even a trend of, significant, of almost significantly worse survival. And then we have the um, we have the third study. We have the SOC one study, which uh, had another um, selection point. Um, it was a um, score similar to the AGO score, um, just having also numbers and sites of residual of, of tumor sites. So it was a bit more complicated. Um, and this study is not mature yet for the overall survival. Has however shown again here equivalent to the desktop study a significant prolongation of PFS for the surgical patients. So these three studies, practically, the main difference is the key selection of the patients. The main difference was the impact of surgery on OS. However, in terms of PFS, they had relatively consistent um, findings in that tumor-free operated patients do have a longer remission com compared to the not operated patients. Great. So that's a that's a great setup for for the uh, discussions on this uh, topic. So I'll turn to uh, Rob and um, want to ask you: with these uh, prospective randomized trials uh, already um, being published, uh, why did you feel that that we needed to perform a, a meta analysis on on this topic? Well, thanks, Pedro, and thanks for uh, having us and spotlighting this research. Um, as you noted. So I think that's a really great question. And as Christina so uh, you know, comprehensively noted, the three randomized controlled trials were all very well designed in their own right, but there were significant differences in those designs, um, which included the selection of participating centers, um, the surgical quality control criteria, and the criteria for offering attempt at, an attempt at secondary cytoreductive surgery. And all of these factors, uh, which are also found across the broader body of literature that addresses this topic, introduce a level of heterogeneity into the study populations that can make study-to-study -study comparisons um, problematic at best. And so this is a methodology that we've used before as one means of mitigating or controlling for such heterogeneity across studies. Uh, and, and it essentially pools the, the available data, in other words, a meta-analysis to account for some of these confounding factors and hopefully be able to tease out those variables that are of most significance, depending on what your primary endpoint is or your, your outcome of interest is. And so, uh, as I said, the, the, the randomized control trials are, are all great, but there are very, there's variability in the outcomes and significant heterogeneity in the inclusion criteria and, and some of the other 
aspects that I mentioned that we felt that approaching it in this way was a was a uh, a, a viable avenue to get a twenty thousand foot view of really the role of secondary debulking in the management of patients with recurrent ovary cancer. Yeah, and and certainly uh, from you. Uh... Um, we have had some some very very resourceful meta analyses uh, before on primary surgery as well. So I'm sure this is also going to be as uh, frequently referenced as well. Um, so the, the next question I wanted to ask is uh, Myung um, a little bit about the the inclusion and the exclusion criteria uh, for this particular uh, meta analysis. Thank you for the question. Uh, the prospective and the uh, and the retrospective studies uh, reporting survival outcomes from secondary site reductive surgery for platinum sensitive recurrent ovarian cancer have been included uh, with surgical outcome of complete site reduction or the optimal site reduction with various criteria of, of residual tumor after surgery ranging from 0.5 millimeters to 2 centimeters. We excluded the uh, additional uh, duplicate research, tertiary site reductive surgery, uh, surgical studies, or, and uh, reporting surgical outcomes with platinum resistance disease. So uh, one, one of the things that uh, uh, we wanted to ask, and, and some of these questions come from our fellows in the uh, journal, um, Myung, the, why did you decide to focus on just patients who underwent surgery instead of also including uh, patients who did not undergo surgery? And this question came from Felix Borea from uh, Madrid in Spain. Yeah, uh, excluding three randomized trials, most studies were retrospective analysis of daily uh, routine clinical practice. So there were uh, inevitable selection bias between surgical group versus non-surgical group. Uh, methodology, methodology of this study is based on the meta-analysis for the surgical outcomes of maximal cytoreductive surgery for primary ovarian cancer published in the JCO exactly 20 years ago, 2002 years, reported by Dr. Bristol. And, and um, as a follow-up to that, um, one of the other questions that came from our uh, fellows was, you know, given all of the heterogeneity of the, of the studies included in, in any meta-analysis uh, for, for that matter, uh, would it have been possible to perform a subgroup analysis um, according to study population in terms of like low versus high burden of disease, the type of recurrence, um, what would this have allowed for uh, perhaps uh, uh, these subgroup analyses? Yeah, as you commented, uh, the heterogeneity in terms of the disease burden and the type of recurrence makes uh, more subgroup analysis difficult. Yeah, and, and particularly when, when looking at so many, so many studies, I'm sure. Um, one of the other questions that came from the fellows was, did you consider evaluating the quality of the studies um, included in, in your analyses. Uh, the others have included a, a process of uh, like the Newcastle Ottawa um, classification for determining whether studies were good or not in the meta-analyses. Yes, yes, we did. 
uh, because of the limited space of the publication, uh, the evaluation has not been included. Okay, interesting. Uh, so now, Rob, um, what was the primary endpoint of this meta-analysis? Um, well, the, the primary outcome was median overall survival, and as well as the proportion of death events. In other words, the, the proportion of patients that died over those that were enrolled in the study. And this really was the variable of most interest to us, given the conflicting data on overall survival in the randomized controlled trials. Um, and additionally, um, given the evolution of surgical concepts and techniques and instrumentation, as well as adjuvant therapy over time, that could potentially influence PFS, uh, that becomes very challenging to control for in this sort of a setting. And so, as I mentioned earlier, we really wanted to try and take a 20,000 foot view and, and tease out um, the variable of most interest to most patients and clinicians, and that's how long they're going to live. And so, uh, as I said, it was median overall survival was the primary outcome. Great. Um, and now, Myung, go, going back to you with regards to how many studies did you include in this meta-analysis? How many patients altogether? And what were the results of the study? Yeah. From the meta-analysis uh, of the 2,805 patients uh, from the 36 studies, the pooled death rate was 44%. And both complete and uh, optimal site reduction were associated with better survival outcomes. Uh, in the linear uh, regression model, on the basis of the 4,408 patients from uh, 57 studies, uh, the median overall survival time increased by 9 and 7% when the complete and optimal site reduction proportion increased by 10% respectively after uh, ad adjusting other variables. Mm -hmm. Great, so then now that brings me to some of the specific questions that we want to uh, address and target here. And I'll go to Christina for this. Um, you know, certainly throughout time, there, there have been differences in terms of definition of what is optimal surgery, what's the ideal surgery. And you know, when, you look, when you look at studies, particularly studies that have been done quite some time ago, complete versus optimal set of reduction, how did you deal with these uh, definitions? Yeah, yeah that's, that's an excellent point. And that's something that uh, we had long discussions with Myung about this. So all the recent studies and the three prospective randomized studies, they address either complete macroscopic completely macroscopically resected patients versus no not tumor-free. So not tumor-free could mean from one millimeter to five centimeters disease, or I don't know, the entire disease thing. So, and all that comes from the analysis of, the, um, of many other studies showing that it's actually, especially in the Descope study, it's only the patients who are operated tumor-free who appear to have a benefit. Okay. Therefore, we don't really say optimal debulking anymore. We say total macroscopic tumor clearance. Has, however, as you have rightly said, in the past, decades ago, that wasn't the case. And also the meta-analysis of Rob for primary surgery many years ago, it uh, had, if you remember, an optimal debulking with a residual disease of two centimeters here, which is something that we would never consider anymore. So, of course, we didn't want to let out these studies, and we have included them, but we have done like two sub-analysis. One sub-analysis is for the benefit of patients operated completely tumor-free and the other patients, um, the other sub-analysis was for the patients 
operated optimally, whatever optimally meant in every study. So we clustered them all together. And what actually we have interestingly shown was that even those patients who were optimally tumor-free, uh, optimally debulked, but not tumor-free, even actually those had a benefit, a bit less than the tumor-free one, but they had benefit in survival, um, which is something that the desktop hasn't shown. But of course, we have to say that in the papers where they mentioned and defined optimally debulked patients, many of them would have been the completely tumor-free operated ones. So it's very, very tricky to crystallize them out. Yeah. Great. And, and, and I'm sure Rob appreciates the comment of, his meta-analyses from many, many, many years ago. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I, and, and, yeah, and I, you know, I've decided, you know, that I've never years. appreciated that, that the, the terminology optimal is just, it's so nonspecific, it mm -hmm. becomes almost non-functional, right? It, it's like saying the surgery was good. Right. Exactly. <laughs> you know? yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It was a nice surgery, nice surgery. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah it's exactly. very pleasing. <clears throat> so, so then, Rob, and then my next question, and I, I think in looking at the meta-analysis results, the, the, the rates of complete, complete side reduction range from 9% to 100%. And there are some who might say, well, I, I, you know, what do I make of this when you have such a huge range of complete side reduction in this, uh, in this study? Well, I think uh, we know just from personal experience that the um, the surgical capabilities of G1 oncologists around the world ranges widely, as does the philosophical approach of G1 oncologists and surgical oncologists to approaching patients with advanced or recurrent metastatic ovary cancer. And those very those th those variables are very difficult to control for. Um, and and so I. I, I don't think it's really a big surprise that the rates of complete uh, cytoreduction ranged from nine to a hundred percent. Like we can, I can go out here into the community in Orange County and probably pick out hospitals that'll have a similar or <laughs> range of complete debulking. Um, and that's just the reality of the world that we practice in. But I think one of the unique aspects of this project and, and the previous projects that we've done using this methodology is um, an attempt to try and quantify more of a population-based impact of the imp of, of cytoreductive surgery and complete debulking. Um, and, 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 and the way to do that is to uh, treat the surgical result in each of those studies as a continuous variable essentially, the rate of complete or optimal debulking, as opposed to a, a binary variable. Um, so we would expect to have rates ranging from zero to 100%. Um, and uh, I think that that's a reflection of those factors that I, that I outlined earlier, is the inter-surgeon variability and the inter-institutional variability with surgical capabilities and philosophical approach to doing these procedures. Yeah. And, and my next question is, uh, uh, Christina, but certainly Rob would love to hear your thoughts about that as well. Do you have a sense after obviously reading such an extensive number of uh, manuscripts and papers on this topic that as you achieve complete gross resection, is there an associated increase in major perioperative morbidity 
or even potentially immortality. In other words, mm-hmm. is extending the, 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 the complexity of, of your intervention associated with potentially worse immediate outcomes for those patients. Yeah. Shall I start, Rob? <clears throat> so, mortality that we have seen um, in our meta-analysis was 16%, the, the morbidity was 16%, and the mortality was less than 1%. So if we take, for example, the LION study, which was a prospective randomized study in primary patients, the mortality was around 3%, so it was higher. So the, the fact alone that the patients who we operate at, at relapse, the fact that they have already reached and have survived the initial diagnosis, are fit enough and strong enough to be considered for surgery at relapse. They're per definition stronger patients than the old comas that we see at primary presentation. And that is why the, def- that is why the mortality that we see across all recurrent studies uh, with recurrent surgery is actually lower than the mortality in the primary studies, just because per definition, these patients are stronger because they have survived so long to be considered to be operated again. Otherwise, mm. we wouldn't operate them again. Okay. Um, we have not actually seen, we haven't really analyzed it extra, but we haven't seen reading all the papers that there is an increase with increased complete resection rates, there is an increase of mortality and morbidity. One could say it's actually the other way around because the center that is specialized enough to mm. um, achieve complete resection on the majority of the patients and doing that many times and, and selecting patients well and being trained in that and having large exposure, these, these centers have actually lower mortality just because um, they are used to doing these operations and they are trained to do these operations instead of doing, I don't know, two resections a year and then having nine out of 10 patients, nine out of 100 patients only operated tomorrow. So it's, it's, it's not as simple as the higher the radicality is, the more the mortality. On the contrary, one could say. Yeah, I would well, just add um, to, to Christina's point. I think, the, I think the, the final point that Christina made is probably it's certainly a dominant factor, right? It's the experience of the surgical team. And I do mean team. It's not just G1 oncologists, it's surgical oncologists, it's hydrobiliary surgeons, colorectal surgeons, cardiothoracic surgeons, intensivists, the nursing care, uh, the anesthesia team. Uh, All of those those are essential components that, that comprise you know, a center of excellence and a team that is fully capable of taking care of these patients and achieving really good surgical results with, with, there's never going to be no risk, but with minimal acceptable risk, there's always going to be a trade-off between the potential benefit and, uh, and the risks associated with those surgeries. But I think by and large, what you see is those experience centers are able to do these surgeries in a relatively efficient, timely fashion with acceptable morbidity rate, certainly comparable to primary surgery, perhaps even less. Um, and most of these cases are not taking uh, 18 hours uh, because they have an efficient surgical team and they have good, they have experience in the post-op care and there are clinical pathways in place to manage these things. So I think it's a little short-sighted just to look at the, the radicality required to achieve a no-gross residual result. It's really the totality of that clinical continuum from when the patient walks in the door for consideration of surgery to when they're discharged from the hospital and during that immediate 30 to 60 day post-operative period 
the the dexterity and facility with which the entire team is able to manage that continuum, I think is is what really is the, probably the dominant factor that determines the risk of morbidity and mortality. Yeah, absolutely. Very well said. And uh, Rob, I wanted to get into the details of uh, oncologic outcomes. And, um, you know, when looking at a meta-analysis, you see wide variations in terms of disease-free interval. I believe it ranged from 14 months all the way up to 48 months and overall survival from 21 months to 82 months. Um, for the for the surgeons who are looking to have that discussion with a patient or for the patient actually looking at this information, um, how do they take this and, and, and offer uh, advice to, to the patients and, and their consent? And, and also, what are your thoughts with regards to as to why there are such huge variations in these studies? Well, th thanks, Pedro. That's a great question. I think, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the meta-analysis, especially with this design, it really is a 20,000 foot view, right? So we, in order to uh, uh, generate a represent representative uh, picture of what the impact of surgery is, we included a 25 or 26 year uh, inclusion interval uh, for, for eligible studies that could be incorporated into the meta-analysis. And during the last 26 years, uh, concepts of surgery have evolved, our surgical techniques have evolved, the surgical instrumentation that we use to employ those techniques have evolved, and adjuvant therapies have evolved significantly. All of those uh, factors um, are, are going to influence the patient's subsequent survival to a surgical attempt or a, a non-surgical attempt. Um, and, and as you already noted earlier, there was a, there was a very generous and wide variation in the rate of the individual with which the individual studies achieved complete resection uh, or an optimal surgical result. And as we've shown, this is a significant predictor of overall survival. So with a 9% to 100% range of complete cytor reduction and saying that complete cytor reduction is a significant factor influencing survival, I don't think given the contextual backdrop of a 26 year inclusion interval, that such a wide variation in survival outcomes is, is really a surprise. And I think when counseling patients, that's a, it's our responsibility as clinicians to be able to put that into perspective for them. Uh, it's not, you can't do a direct comparison of a study from 2021 to 1995, yeah. right? For survival rates, because there's just so many other factors. We have biologic agents and we have genetic profiling now and molecular testing and uh, aquamantis and argon beam coagulators and all kinds of things that were just not available in 1995. Yeah, and, and that's actually a, a great segue into my next question. I'll ask Christina because, you know, I was recently um, doing a podcast with Philip Harder uh, talking about the desktop three and he said, you know, one of the things is that, you know, we, we often get criticized, uh, for example, in, in, in the desktop three, not including the impact of PARP inhibitor and maintenance of PARP inhibitor. And he said, you know, when I started the desktop three, there was no PARP inhibitor. So there's absolutely, how could I be faulted for not including that? Um, so the next question, Christina, is that, you know, obviously given this new era of anti-angiogenesis agents and PARP inhibitors and maintenance therapy, um, how, how do you feel that these actually impact the, the outcomes after secondary cytoreductive surgery? And then one of the questions from our fellows was like, do you foresee the feasibility 
of similar studies like the GOG213 or desktop three incorporating biomarker-driven predictors. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And we actually had the same discussion with Andres Duval the other day, and we, we said it will be, I think it will be really very difficult to repeat something like desktop three with POPs, um, to be honest, especially in the view of the fact that many patients now come and they want surgery because there are these positive data. So go and randomize them to the no surgery. Yeah? So <clears throat> what I will answer to this is what I always answer is it's in, in oncology, it's not one treatment or the other. It's the package of care. And like we have immense systemic advances with the parts with the anti-angiogenetic agents, we just need to go the same way and to pair this advance with, with better surgery and, and better surgical treatments. So the fact that we have now better systemic treatments doesn't diminish the value of surgical treatments, actually increases it because we want to have maximal effort treatment across all levels, both systemic and surgical. So the fact that we now can give them PARPs doesn't mean we don't need surgery. On the contrary, we now can say, since we have PARPs, let's operate on them because now we will give them the chance of getting PARPs. We fix the bowel, we can get a vastin, which perhaps they couldn't. So it's all a package of care on a maximal effort treatment approach. As simple as that. Yeah. And, and, and uh, Rob, I uh, wanted to ask you because, and I think, you know, we saw this from the prospective studies and, you know, as you know, patients are very well read these days. They come in with very accurate information. They have read the desktop three, <laughs> they have read GOG213. And I was having a discussion with a patient um, that we were discussing secondary side reduction. One of the things that she mentioned, she said, well, it seems to me that if you go to surgery, and you get it wrong. In other words, if you don't perform an absolute complete side of reduction, then my outcome may be actually worse than if I had just gone straight into chemotherapy. So what are your thoughts on that? And, and how do you have that discussion with your patients? Yeah, that's a great question, Pedro. Uh, you know, I think, I'm not sure that it's so much of a question of getting it wrong. I'm not, I don't know that I would agree with that terminology. Um, but I think the answer to the question is one that I don't think we fully understand at this point. Um, obviously, there's an associated risk of perioperative morbidity and even mortality with these operations. But one would really anticipate that this would have a negligible effect on long-term survival rates unless the perioperative mortality rate were just astronomical. Um, I think probably more likely that there, there are biological factors that we have yet to fully uh, define and understand that probably influence both the, the physical behavior of the tumor, in other words, the, the, the spread pattern or the ability of the tumor to adhere to um, certain tissues, um, as well, at, which will impact the, the likelihood and feasibility of a complete resection. Uh, but those fat biologic factors also likely will have an impact on the effectiveness of subsequent adjuvant therapies. Um, and I think probably everyone on this uh, podcast is very hopeful that at some point we'll be in a position to determine on a molecular level which patients are likely or unlikely to actually benefit from an attempted surgery as well as be selected for certain adjuvant therapies. And then I think finally, I would say that, uh, as I alluded to earlier, there are likely philosophical differences and uh, clinical treatment paradigms. Or, or the entire care package, as, as Christina so nicely described, um, between centers and even between different 
surgeons and clinicians within certain centers. In other words, the aggressiveness or enthusiasm for for with, with which one would pursue uh, an aggressive attempt at surgery or be willing to administer multiple lines of salvage chemotherapy are, are things that, that I think there's probably great variation uh, in our in our current practice structure um, that are that are really kind of impossible to control for with a, with a study of this design. Yeah, and and uh, you know you mentioned the the, the enthusiasm uh, moving forward, and uh, you know one of the things that I even after these studies and often in our tumor boards or multidisciplinary conferences is you know finding that that patient that you you feel enthusiastic about going back to surgery, and you know we we have all the trials and we have all the scoring systems and the eye model and and the score. So in, in your practices, and actually I'd like to hear from both of you on this also as well, in your practices, who do you say this person is a perfect candidate for secondary saddle reduction versus nah, I don't think so. In other words, on this one, I'm applying desktop three and on this one, I'm applying GOG 213. Yeah, that's actually a very good point. <clears throat> this is a very good point. So <clears throat> the desktop study Assume no, the AGO score presumes that the patients will have had a good surgery in the beginning. Okay, so unfortunately, not all patients have had this chance. We have many patients, especially now in COVID, who have never operate, been operated in the primary situation, or they had surgery which was suboptimal, not because of bad biology of the disease but because they ended up, I don't know, with an obstruction in a small village, they just had a stoma and then chemo and never operated again. So these patients per definition have a negative AGO score, but actually are not AGO negative, AGO score negative, if it makes sense. So we can't exclude them um, from um, a secondary site reduction just because they were unlucky the first way around. Um, and this is something that we have now also depicted in our British Gynecology Cancer Society guidelines. Now with COVID, we have said we can't anymore really blindly just take the AGO score, just simply because in the last couple of years, many patients did not even have surgery at primary presentation. So there are some key thumb rules where, according to which we should select patients. And for example, I do that in, in my institution patients should have operable disease. I mean, somebody with multiple liver meds, multiple lung meds, no. Or I don't know, multiple mediastinal lymph nodes and supraclavicular lymph nodes. So patients who are not operable in the entire body, not just the upper, okay? And I'm not talking about a five millimeter pet avid axillary node, which is insignificant. So that's point one. Point two, patients need to be fit. Patients need to be fit to sustain a second operation and a second line chemo. So that's the second characteristic. Third, we know that patients who have failed treatment options so far, so resistant or refractory patients, they don't benefit from a side reduction. So patients who had just had a few months ago a massive primary debulking chemo and then relapsed three months later, why would I go and operate again when my this approach has already failed once only? a, a, a while ago? So if we want to put it in a very simple some rule is fit operable patients, but operable in a, in a maximal effort setting, not just a small mass in the pelvis operable, yeah, um, who um, can sustain radical surgery. 
Now, in terms of ascites, patients with very wet disease, with very pluriffusion extensive ascites, these are patients that we would operate up front. Again, like Rob said, depending on the philosophy of the center, but these are not the ideal candidates for relapse because usually these patients that will have extensive small nodule disease that we can't completely clear, they won't be fit enough, etc. So we need to be very careful in selecting them. Yeah, I would agree with everything that Christina said. I think just to extrapolate on the point of um, the, the primary surgical effort and our ability to really interpret um, that within the context of an individual patient is it is it has been made more difficult, not just because of the pandemic and patients not getting a, a maximal primary surgical effort, but I will um, I will say one of the trends we've observed over the past five, seven, eight years is that uh, many of these patients with newly di diagnosed ovary cancer are not getting to a, a major G1 oncology center at the time of initial diagnosis. I think with the popularity of the neoadjuvant approach, which is a whole different podcast. Um, in many cases, medical oncologists are making the primary determinations about whether patients are candidates for initial surgery and indeed triaging those patients to um, the, 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 the G1 oncologist or surgical oncologist of their, of their selection. Um, and so it, I don't say, I don't think that it completely uh, negates the value of the first surgical effort result. But I do think that that really needs to be taken into context, as, as Christina was, was, was explaining. Um, so that if, if the patient's never really had a maximal surgical effort, effort up front, then, then yeah, I, I agree with Christina. I would be willing to mitigate some of those selection criteria in terms of the number of lesions and the distribution of disease. Obviously not mediastinal meds and those sorts of things, but in terms of the number of peritoneal lesions. And um, I think those factors can be they have to be taken within the context of each individual patient and that therein lies the art of medicine. But um, I, I will say like we've, I've been doing these secondary operations for 20 plus years and uh, I, it, the, the criteria for patients that are likely to benefit for those have been pretty consistent across time. You can go and point to the, the Memorial Sloan Kettering study from 2006 with Dennis G for patient selection criteria for secondary operations. It's the distribution number of lesions and the disease-free interval. So the fewer lesions, the more likely they are to benefit, the more likely they are to be successful in the longer the disease-free interval, the more enthusiastic, right? You're gonna be about wanting to operate on those patients. Yeah. So I uh, really love, uh, obviously, uh, speaking with you, discussing this. I am going to take advantage of having this expertise because I, I think I'm going to use this for the first time in a, in a podcast, but I'm going to do an actual consultation on a patient that I operated on yesterday because it's, it's actually very pertinent to this topic. This patient has had a disease-free interval of five years. So she had a recurrence and it's an isolated recurrence to the spleen. And it was not a cirrhosis, it was actually an, a parenchymal isolated recurrence of the spleen. So of course, this morning when I go visit her, she says, well, you already took it out. So do I need chemotherapy after? What are your thoughts in, in, those, in those types of patients? High-grade serous or low-grade? High-grade serous. Myung, what do you think? <laughs> uh, in, in cases of high-grade uh, serous ovarian cancer, there must be uh, uh, 
uh, even uh, not identified clinically, uh, grossly uh, visible, uh, there must be uh, another subtle lesion in the peritoneal cavity. So I do prefer to uh, adjuvant chemotherapy in cases of high-grade serous cancer. And if the patients have the BRCA mutation or a strong family history, I do like to do uh, post-operative intraperitoneal chemotherapy because the BRCA mutated patients more uh, well responded to intraperitoneal chemotherapy. So uh, if the patients have the BRCA mutated patients, I uh, firstly consider the complete site reduction followed by the IP chemotherapy and followed by uh, PAP inhibitor. Thank you, Mian. Rob? Um, <clears throat> yeah, yeah, I no think, <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think you have to counsel the patient. It's I mean, certainly the um, the approach that, that Dr. Lim just outlined is the standard approach. Mm -hmm. um, and that that would be, I think, the general recommendation across the board in order to try and optimize the chances for long-term survival and probably potential for cure in this case. Um, uh, maybe, uh, you know, I, but, you know, to your point, we, there's not a, um, we don't have like the spleen top three trial to point to, to know <laughs> how, how the outcome is going to be with, with chemo or no chemo after this. So I think you, 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 you counsel the patient about the pros and cons, but I think certainly the aggressive approach, I don't, if there's no evidence of intraperitoneal disease, I'm not sure that I would go for intraperitoneal chemo at that point, but certainly um, with a with a parenchymal splenic recurrence, I would probably advocate for for intravenous chemo um, mm -hmm. followed by some sort of maintenance therapy. Excellent, great, thanks, Rob and uh, Christina. So, um, in all retro, I mean, in desktop and all these prospective randomized trials, all patients or most of them got uh, chemotherapy afterwards. If we retrospectively, however, see all these many, many studies that we have analyzed and many other studies that we have published, patients who had a combination of secondary site reduction and chemo, they did better than those who had surgery alone. Of course, this can be due to the fact that those patients who did not proceed to chemo were the ones who had a complication, who were the weaker ones, who died, etc. So there is a bias selection there for sure. But in all studies, it's the combination that is actually the key to success. Now, as um, Dr. Lim also said, in high-grade series, I mean, micros microscopically tumor-free, even if you take out the tumor, the visible tumor, can you be sure that there isn't any tumor cell anywhere swimming, especially since this tumor has come back five years later? Of course there is. So it would be illusionary to think that by taking out the spleen in a high-grade series would be enough. What, however, so I would give chemo, definitely would give chemo. However, what we have to consider now is that very often more and more we see patients at relapse have been on PARPs, have been stable on PARPs, then relapse on PARPs. We just take out the couple of lesions that have been resistant, if you want to call it to PARPs, and then you just continue with PARPs instead of giving chemo. So this is like a, a new, yeah, a new approach. And increasingly more and more we will have <clears throat> replacement of chemo with just targeted agents. So I'm not sure it's just chemo the answer, but they need the systemic approach to consolidate the surgical approach. Great. So thank you all so much. This really has been a pleasure, honor, 
And uh, congratulations again on your work. Uh, and I really encourage and invite all the listeners to uh, read this really a very interesting article, Secondary Cytoreductive Surgery in Platinum Sensitive Recurrent Ovarian Cancer and Meta-Analyses. Thank you all so, so much for your time. Thank you. Thank Thanks, you Pedro. Yeah, thank you. Good seeing you, Mion, Christina. Yeah. Good seeing you all. Good to see you. All right. <laughs>